The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by Mott and Bow, Cove, and Beta Brand. The episode I'm covering today was suggested by a listener of the show and a Patreon supporter named Lash, and she knew the perpetrator's children. I'll be releasing an episode exclusively for Patreon supporters, where Lash and I get on the phone and discuss her insight on those involved in the case. Head over to patreon.com slash murderish if you want to get access to that conversation once it's released on Patreon. I want to send a big thank you out to Jacinta Harvey, Chris O'Donnell, Nicole Boyd, Ashley Nutt, Dominique Balsoma, Harry Richardson, and Rhiannon. You guys are the latest Murderish Patreon supporters, and I appreciate you all so much. Lastly, I want to remind you that I'll be hosting a live show along with some friends on October 18th of 2019. The True Crime Variety Show is going down at the Federal Bar in North Hollywood. The show will feature stand-up comedy, yellow tape true crime trivia, a true crime celebrity guest interview, and mixing and mingling with some of your favorite L.A.-based true crime podcasters after the show. I would absolutely love to see you there. So mark your calendar for October 18th and head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group for show details and info on how to buy tickets. In the Facebook group, you should see cover art and an announcement at the top of the feed with show details and ticket information. You can also email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com with any questions you might have. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Hope to see you at the show. Now, on to today's case. FBI agents have joined the search for a missing New Jersey executive. Sidney Riso, president of the Exxon International Corporation, disappeared yesterday morning. His wife, Patricia, said he left early that morning. An hour later, his car was found idling at the end of the driveway to his home. You know, it just seems so strange. Where? Why? They had followed their routine. They had breakfast together, and she walked him to the door and said goodbye, as she always did, around 7.30. His car never got beyond the bottom of his driveway, and the engine was running, and there was no sign of him. The guy had just gone poof. Morris Township is located in the southeastern portion of the state of New Jersey. Morristown was once a part of Morris Township, but that would later change. The town was originally inhabited by the Lenape Native American tribe until English settlers arrived in the early 18th century. Incorporated on March 1st of 1740, Morris Township and Morristown were named after Lewis Morris, the first royal governor of New Jersey. The town played an integral role in the American Revolution. General George Washington and his Continental Army camped outside of Morristown during the winter of 1777, right after his surprising victories at the battles of Trenton and Princeton. Washington chose to camp at Morristown mainly due to its location, being that it was located in between Philadelphia, the American capital, and New York City, which the British occupied for the entire war. This prime location allowed the army to protect Philadelphia and the Continental Congress, which resided there. There were also citizens in Morristown who were friendly to the army. These allies could provide weapons, clothing, and food, items of which the Continental Army constantly ran short. Washington would again camp his army at Morristown three years later during a horrendous winter in 1780. The weather that winter was so bad 
the roads iced over, making it almost impossible for provisions to be brought in. At least two Continental regiments mutinied because they had not been paid in months and starvation was rampant. In 1886, the state legislature made Morristown a separate municipality from Morris Township. Morristown is referred to as a donut town, as it's now completely surrounded by Morris Township. Today, Morristown, New Jersey is a middle-class town. In contrast, Morris Township is an affluent town with a median household income of over $132,000 as of the 2010 United States Census Bureau, more than double the median household income in Morristown. Some notable people have lived in Morris Township and Morristown. Game of Thrones actor Peter Dinklage, editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine Steve Forbes, and Alfred Vail, the inventor of Morse code, are all from the towns. In 1992, Morristown would be rocked by a shocking botched kidnapping turned murder. One family, who on the surface appeared to be living the American dream, would turn to drastic measures in order to keep the facade and upscale lifestyle going. The family I'm referring to went big and thought they had figured out how to continue living lavishly. Their big plan, however, would crumble to pieces and leave a high-profile executive dead. Join me as I walk you through the shocking and tragic murder of Exxon President Sidney Riso. Sidney Joseph Riso was born on February 12th of 1935 in New Orleans, Louisiana. He attended college at Louisiana State University and married Patricia Marie Armand in August of 1955. The couple had five children together, Christopher, Robin, Sid, Gregory, and Renee. Sidney graduated from LSU in 1957 with a degree in petroleum engineering. He accepted a job with Humble Oil and Refining which in 1973 became part of the oil giant Exxon. Sidney quickly moved up the corporate ladder, being promoted to vice president of Exxon USA in 1980, then senior vice president the following year, executive vice president in 1985, executive vice president of Exxon Company International in 1986, and finally, he was promoted to president of Exxon Company International in 1988. The year following Sydney's promotion to president, the oil giant would be the cause of one of the worst environmental disasters on record. In 1989, the Exxon Valdez spilled millions of gallons of crude oil after hitting a reef in Alaska. Sidney Riso would be dead just three years later. By 1992, Sidney and Patricia had been married for 37 years and had four grown children. In 1987, tragedy struck the Riso family when their son Gregory died of AIDS. This led Sidney and Patricia to become heavily involved in helping AIDS victims. The couple also helped run a soup kitchen sponsored by the Catholic Church. Sidney and Patricia were well known for their charity work. Oil executives are often despised by people, but Sidney Riso was different. 
He was not only active in his community, his church, and charity work, people very much respected and liked Sidney Riso. Arthur Seal Jr. was born in 1947 in Hillside, New Jersey, a small middle-class town about 20 miles southeast of Morristown, just outside Newark. Arthur's father was an officer for the Hillside Police Department and would eventually rise to the rank of deputy police chief. His mother worked as a school secretary. Arthur was a handsome boy who got good grades and was gifted in sports. In high school, Arthur's parents enrolled him in Admiral Farragut Academy in Pine Beach, New Jersey, where he played football and ran track. After graduating in 1965, Arthur attended Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, but he didn't stay there. Arthur left Drew University after his freshman year. In 1967, he followed in his father's footsteps and accepted a job in the Hillside Police Department. Only a few blocks away from the Seal family lived the Zarco family, who were more well-to-do than most of their neighbors. The Zarcos owned several properties, including a liquor store and deli, which the husband operated. Mrs. Zarco was a registered nurse. The Zarco's children helped out in the family deli. Their daughter, Irene, who everyone called Jackie, was tall, blonde, and strikingly beautiful. Arthur Seal and Jackie Zarco's paths would cross, and eventually, the two married in 1967. The same year Arthur joined the police force. Arthur and Jackie seemed to be the perfect couple. Both of them were attractive and came from good families. Their future together was bright, and they were the couple of whom others would be envious. People had high hopes for Arthur and the police force, believing he'd be a model police officer just like his father. For a short time, it seemed that would be the case. Soon, however, things began to fall apart. Arthur began having problems controlling his anger. There were incidents where he became physical with witnesses and suspects. Arthur's father, given the stellar reputation he had in the force, was able to help smooth things over for a while, but his efforts could only go so far. Arthur's behavior kept escalating until eventually it led to him being disciplined numerous times and being suspended twice. Various reports noted that he pulled his gun out in front of people without proper reason. Other reports documented that he hit the mother of a suspect in the head with his gun when she tried to intervene in her son's arrest. There were other instances of physical aggression also noted in Arthur's file. Eventually, Arthur left the force in 1977 on a disability claim which allowed him to collect two-thirds of his pension. Some questioned his claim, saying the department was just trying to get rid of him and the problems he was causing. The town attorney, however, confirmed that his leave was due to a legitimate disability and said that the claim was mutually beneficial to Mr. Seal and the force. Allegedly, Arthur later told his friends that he had won a $1 million settlement from the police force after he was hit by a squad car and injured. After Arthur left the police force, the Seal family moved from Hillside to Chester Township, about 35 miles west. They bought a Mercedes, dressed in expensive clothes, and sent their children, Justin and Courtney, to a private school. While it's uncertain how the Seals were able to afford this lifestyle, this is at least one of the occasions where Arthur supposedly told others about the $1 million settlement 
he claimed to have received from the police department. Arthur soon found work with a security department that contracted with oil giant Exxon. Arthur was promoted to a supervisory role within the security company. Jackie was hired as an office manager at Tewksbury Wine Cellars in Oldwick, New Jersey. In 1982, Arthur was promoted to head of security at Exxon's Florham Park office, and in 1984, he was promoted to security manager. It's unclear whether Arthur Seal knew Exxon International President Sidney Riso, but because of his position in the security department, he likely at least knew who Sidney was. In 1987, as the security company began downsizing, Arthur accepted a buyout and left his position as security manager. He and his family then moved to South Carolina, where he and Jackie decided to purchase a furniture business. The Seals sold their home in New Jersey and bought a more expensive home in Hilton Head, South Carolina, near a popular beach resort. Unfortunately, Things did not go well for Arthur and Jackie in South Carolina. The furniture store, which had been a successful business for the previous owners, did not thrive while the SEALs operated it. In July of 1988, the previous owners, who still owned the real estate where the business was run, sued the SEALs for certain debts and back taxes. With their business failing and the family heavily in debt, Arthur and Jackie picked up again and moved to Vail, Colorado. Arthur got a job as a stockbroker and Jackie worked as a secretary. This move, like the last one, would not prove to be a good one. Soon after the family relocated to Colorado, the couple's 13-year-old daughter, Courtney, ran away from home numerous times, and police were called to the house to break up a fight between Arthur and their son, Justin. During all of this chaos, Arthur and Jackie continued living beyond their means. Without telling anyone, the couple packed up once again and quietly moved out of their home back to New Jersey to live with Arthur's parents in Changewater. This was a temporary living situation as they needed time to figure out what to do next. After moving in with his parents, Arthur found a job at Intertel, a security firm, but that was short-lived as the firm closed its New York office in March of 1992. Jackie was hired at a local winery, but that only lasted a few months. This series of misfortunes would lead the SEALs down a very dark path, a path that nobody could ever see coming. I would argue that a great-fitting pair of jeans is the most important item in your wardrobe. I recently found an amazing pair of jeans. Mott & Bow is a really cool jeans company that makes high-quality jeans in their own factory. I have two pairs of these jeans, and let me tell you why I am completely obsessed with them. Mott & Bow's jeans hug you in all the right places, which is my number one requirement with jeans. These jeans keep their shape for days without washing, which is a huge bonus. My Mott & Bow jeans are so comfortable, it feels like I'm wearing yoga pants. And let's face it, these days, I rock my yoga pants everywhere. Well, everywhere except for the gym. Mott & Bow's jeans contour your body in all the right ways, and they are so versatile. I've worn my Mott & Bow high-rise skinny bond jeans with stilettos, flip-flops, and vans, and felt great every single time. If you're unsure of which size to order, just order two pairs and return the pair that doesn't fit 
using the prepaid return label that comes with your order. Mott & Bow has really cool styles to choose from for men and women. I've said before that I am a total jeans snob, and Mott & Bow's jeans are amazing. If you're ready to rock jeans that hug you in all the right places, go to mottandbow.com and use promo code MURDERISH for 15% off for first-time buyers. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com and use MURDERISH for 15% off. Anyone who's had a migraine knows they can completely ruin your day. My best friend suffers from migraines and I have seen firsthand how debilitating it can be. This is where Cove comes in. Cove offers acute and preventative migraine treatment to reduce the severity and frequency of your migraines. Cove's migraine treatment begins with a simple consultation from the convenience of your own home. After the consultation, a doctor reviews your symptoms and decides on the best treatment. Then, your personalized supply of medication is delivered right to your doorstep. No medical insurance is required. My friend participated in Cove's consultation process and found it to be such a simple process. Cove's doctors prescribe a treatment plan custom-tailored just for you. Your treatment is supervised by a doctor who's licensed to practice medicine in your state. And all medication prescribed by Cove's doctors are FDA-approved. A few weeks after you begin treatment, your Cove doctor will reach out via their secure portal to see how you're doing. If you suffer from migraine headaches, the last thing you need is to wait to see a doctor. With Cove, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. For a limited time, get your first month of medication free. Visit withcove.com slash murderish. That's W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash murderish. One problem that Arthur and Jackie Seal continued to encounter was that while they were very good at spending money, they were not very good at managing it. They left South Carolina hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, yet they still rented a home in Colorado that, on paper, they couldn't afford. Back in New Jersey, with both of them unemployed and living with his parents, Arthur decided they needed to do something that would give them back the lifestyle they craved. That's when Arthur had an idea. The idea came to him as he read about Victor Samuelson, an Exxon executive who was kidnapped in Argentina in 1974. Samuelson was kidnapped by a group that eventually received $14 million in ransom for his safe return. Arthur believed he could do the same thing. He began looking up addresses for some of the Exxon executives who lived in the area to see which of them lived in neighborhoods that would be easy to escape. In December of 1991, he and Jackie began taking the first steps toward executing their devious plan. The couple began surveilling certain Exxon executives to decide which of them would be the best target. After a few months, Arthur and Jackie decided on Sidney Riso. Their decision was based mainly on how accessible they believed he was. His home, due to its location, was easy to watch over. Jackie began jogging by the Riso home in the mornings to get an idea of Sidney Riso's patterns. Jackie came to realize that Sidney Riso was a man who stuck to the same routine every weekday. Arthur also jogged by the Riso home at times to make his own observations about the neighborhood. Sidney Riso left home each morning at 7.25 a.m. 
he'd stop at the end of his driveway to pick up the morning newspaper, and then he'd head out for work. The SEALs theorized that due to Sidney's high-ranking position, that Exxon would pay a large ransom for his release. The SEALs slowly got a feel for how they would go about executing their plan. Arthur read that when Victor Samuelson was kidnapped in Argentina, he was returned inside of a wooden box. The SEALs decided that their victim would also be kept inside of a wooden box while they held him captive. They constructed a six-foot-long, three-and-a-half-foot-high, three-foot-wide box and drilled air holes in it. Arthur installed metal hinges on the top of the box and bought three padlocks to ensure their prisoner would not be able to escape. Arthur and Jackie were done plotting, and now it was time to carry out their plan and begin living the lifestyle they believed they deserved. On Wednesday morning, April 29th of 1992, Sidney Riso awoke to start his day the same as he always had. This day, however, was going to be different, unbeknownst to the beloved Exxon executive. On that morning, Jackie Seal jogged by the Riso house. She saw the morning newspaper sitting at the end of the Riso's driveway where it always was. Jackie kicked the newspaper about 10 feet into the road as she jogged. She continued jogging until she met up with Arthur, who was waiting for her in a van they had rented. Both of them slipped on ski masks. Armed with a handgun, Arthur began driving slowly toward the Riso home, arriving in front of the house just before 7.25 a.m. The couple knew Sidney would be coming out of the house soon. A moment later, just as expected, the Riso's garage door opened. Sidney Riso came out in his car and drove down the driveway. Right on cue, Sidney stopped at the end of the driveway to get the morning paper, except this time it wasn't in his driveway. It was in the road where Jackie kicked it a few minutes earlier. Sidney got out of his car and walked into the road to get the newspaper, only to be confronted by two people wearing ski masks. Arthur pointed his gun at Sidney and ordered him to get into the van. When he got inside the van, Sidney saw for the first time a wooden box. He had no idea it was built specifically for him, but he was spooked by it. Upon seeing the wooden box, Sidney decided to fight back. A struggle ensued, during which Sidney was shot in the arm. Arthur and Jackie eventually forced Sidney into the box. They duct taped his mouth and eyes and locked him inside using padlocks. The couple got into the van and sped off. Their plan, however, was already off to a bad start. In their haste to get away, Jackie had forgotten to leave the ransom note in the driveway for Patricia Riso to find. They didn't want to go back to the scene of the crime. This meant they would have to make contact with Patricia a different way. The SEALs had pulled off the kidnapping, but they had not planned to shoot their victim while executing it. Neither of them had any medical training. They stopped at a store to get Tylenol and gauze, which would be the only type of treatment they would attempt on Sidney's injured arm. Then they drove to an aluminum storage shed they had rented ahead of time. They dragged the wooden box inside of the storage shed. They unlocked the box, let Sidney out, and bandaged his wound, then gave him Tylenol and water. It was at that time that Sidney likely realized what their motive was. They wanted money. 
Arthur and Jackie held Sidney at gunpoint and forced him to record a ransom demand on cassette tape. Not wanting to deal with their victim needing bathroom breaks, the SEALs never fed him the entire time he was held captive. Rationalizing that Sidney would only be in the box for a few days, they didn't think bathroom breaks were necessary. The SEALs eventually duct taped Sidney's hands and mouth again, despite his pleas for them not to. They again locked him inside the box and closed the storage shed. The SEALs returned to the storage shed three times a day to give Sidney water and check on his gunshot wound. Although they exhibited behavior that seemed as if they weren't planning on killing their victim, there were two important factors the SEALs had not taken into account, and the result of their mistakes would have deadly consequences. Sidney Riso had a well-publicized heart problem, having had a heart attack three years earlier. Sidney's health condition and being confined inside of a locked box with a serious gunshot was a recipe for disaster. Although it was the end of April, it was unreasonably warm in New Jersey that year, with temperatures reaching 90 degrees during the day. Being locked inside of a wooden box, which was being stored inside of an aluminum shed, meant that temperatures inside the box exceeded the temperature outside. This combination of circumstances could kill a young, healthy person. With Sidney's age, his health issues, and the fact that he had a gunshot wound, these factors only amplified the danger Sidney was in. Arthur got the idea of putting Sidney in the box from what he read in an article about the kidnapping of Victor Samuelson, but he didn't follow that plan exactly. While Victor Samuelson was delivered safely inside of a wooden box after the ransom was paid, he was not kept inside of the box during his captivity. Whether this decision was purposeful or just as a result of Arthur not reading the article on Samuelson carefully enough is not known. Regardless, that key difference in the two kidnapping plots was a major factor in the tragic ending to this series of events. Back in Morris Township, not long after Sydney's abduction, one of the Riso's neighbors saw his car sitting in the driveway. She noticed that it was still running. She called their house and spoke with Patricia, who went to the end of the driveway and found the car, but not her husband. She immediately called the police, who quickly came to the scene. The police took a quick look into Sidney's life. They wanted to make sure that he had not just walked away from it. Perhaps he had met another woman, or maybe there was a financial reason that may have caused him to disappear on his own accord. Every theory had to be explored. The police, however, quickly determined that this was not the case and that they had arrived at a crime scene. They determined that Sidney Riso was kidnapped for ransom. The FBI was called in to assist. The next day, Thursday, April 30th, a phone call came in to the Exxon headquarters. The caller claimed to have kidnapped Sidney Riso and told the person on the other end that they would find a ransom note taped to a telephone pole at a local mall. The FBI recovered the note, which claimed that Sidney had been kidnapped by an environmental terrorist group. Sidney's Exxon credit card was in the envelope with the ransom letter, likely to show proof they really did have Sidney. The letter claimed that various industries were destroying the earth and the life on it, and that this environmental organization wanted to make these industries pay to help reverse that process. 
they demanded $18.5 million in used $100 bills. The note instructed Exxon to get a portable cellular telephone, which is how cell phones of today were referred to in 1992. The cellular telephone needed to have a 201 area code, the area code for northern New Jersey. The note stated that Exxon needed to place an ad in the local paper with the cellular number listed so the kidnappers could contact them. The note made clear that Sidney would not receive any food or water while he was being held and that he would die if their demands were not fully met. The note further stated that if they did not get a response from Exxon, another Exxon executive would be kidnapped. The kidnappers would show proof that Sidney was alive before they received the ransom money, and they would release him once they received the money according to the letter. They warned against involving the police or FBI, and that their demands were not negotiable. The kidnappers wrote that Sidney would be held in Brazil, and if Exxon didn't meet their demands, Sidney's dead body would be paraded at a rally in Brazil. The kidnappers signed the ransom letter, the Fernando Pereira Brigade, Warriors of the Rainbow. The Rainbow Warrior was a Greenpeace ship whose occupants were protesting a nuclear test by the French government in 1985. Two French agents set a bomb on the ship which blew it up and sank it in the port of Auckland in New Zealand. A Dutch photographer named Fernando Pereira drowned and died as a result of the bombing. The FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, or BSU, were consulted regarding the ransom note. After carefully analyzing the note, they concluded that the kidnappers were not actually with an environmental group. More likely, they believed the note's authors lived locally and were trying to pose as an angry environmental group. The FBI honed in on the fact that all communication from the kidnappers came from the Morristown, Morris Township area despite the letter stating that Sydney was being held in Brazil. The language in the ransom letter used phrases like industrial entities, governmental bodies, and world organizations, but never mentioned any specific names for these agencies. Exxon wasn't even mentioned in the ransom note. The note was too generic. The FBI believed that a group who was that angry at another entity would let that entity know that they were mad at them and most definitely identify them by name. The BSU concluded that the letter was written by current or former Exxon employees who may have had a background in law enforcement and or the military. They also concluded that the kidnappers had some level of familiarity with the Victor Samuelson kidnapping from 1974, as some of the language in the ransom letter was very similar to that of Samuelson's. Law enforcement's next step was to have Exxon construct a list of employees who may have had a problem with the company, as well as individuals who were not employed by Exxon, but had expressed anger toward the company. The list of names was long. Even so, each of these individuals were interviewed in person by FBI agents or the police to determine whether they had any connection to Sidney's kidnapping. This exhaustive effort, however, came up with nothing. Arthur Seal's name was not even on the list. He had in fact worked for Exxon, but he left on good terms, accepting a buyout when the company downsized. There was no reason to think Arthur had any problems with Exxon, and therefore, he didn't make the long list of names. 
If you enjoy listening to Murderish, I have a strong suspicion you'll also love Southern Fried True Crime, a podcast hosted by my friend Erica Kelly. Southern Fried True Crime explores crime cases out of the Deep South. With her soothing and distinctly Southern voice and accent, Erica tells these stories without classism, racism, and the good old boy system that are inherent in Southern cases. Every Thursday, Erica dives deep into these cases and paints a vivid picture in your mind about the town, the community, and the details of these Southern crimes. Historical and contemporary cases are presented on Southern Fried True Crime, cases like Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, the original Family Annihilator, and Green Beret from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Erica also explores the case of Santoya Brown, a sex trafficking victim sentenced to life in prison for killing a man who had purchased her. Santoya was granted clemency and since then has been released from prison. With a voice that sounds like a knife cutting through warm butter, Erica exposes the dark underbelly of the Deep South. She's tough yet thoughtful about telling the victim's story factually with the empathy they deserve. Take my word for it. Southern Fried True Crime should be added to your podcast queue immediately. Search for and subscribe to Southern Fried True Crime wherever you're listening now. And don't forget to rate and review while you're there. Ladies, ditch your old, uncomfortable work pants for Beta Brand Dress Yoga Pants. Beta Brand makes the most comfortable, wrinkle-free, and machine-washable work pants, and they are so figure-flattering. Their pants are made of a four-way ponte stretch and a thicker fabric than yoga pants, making them more durable. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are like yoga pants on steroids. They are so stylish and sleek, extremely comfortable, and you can move around in these suckers, unlike your stiff and uncomfortable old-school work pants that make you feel way more murderish than usual. I've been wearing Beta Brand's skinny leg cigarette dress pant yoga pants, and they fit so well. Beta Brand has so many styles and colors to choose from. You've got to get yourself a pair of Beta Brand dress pant yoga pants. Otherwise, you'll have a serious case of FOMO and nobody wants to be that guy. If you're ready for a serious upgrade on your work pants, visit betabrand.com murderish, all lowercase, to get 20% off your purchase. That's betabrand.com murderish, all lowercase. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Visit B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot com slash murderish, all lowercase, to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants. The investigation into Sydney's kidnapping continued, with Exxon pulling together the $18.5 million in demanded ransom money. The kidnappers told Exxon representatives that they were to wait at a certain payphone on Sunday evening, May 3rd, at which time a call would come in telling them where to drop the money. On Sunday morning, the day they were to receive the ransom money, Arthur and Jackie arrived at the storage shed where Sidney was being held. They were there to check on him. When they opened the padlocked wooden box, they discovered that Sidney Riso was dead. This was a breaking point for Jackie. Killing someone was not in their plan, and she was distraught. Jackie begged her husband to drop everything and forget the ransom money. She wanted to get out of this while they still could before the police found out they were involved. Arthur, however, was in too deep. He paid no mind to Jackie's pleas. He was going to follow through with their plan. 
Arthur rationalized that he and Jackie were the only people that knew Sidney was dead. The ransom money, in Arthur's mind, was still within reach. They could pivot, as they had done after unexpectedly shooting Sidney. They would just make up clues to provide to the Exxon representative for Sidney's location, and they would be out of the country, with the money, before anyone realized what happened. Arthur planned to bury Sidney where no one would ever find him. With Sidney's unexpected death, Arthur and Jackie now had to get rid of the evidence. They took Sidney's body out of the box and removed his clothing. They broke up the box into smaller pieces and burned it along with Sidney's clothes. They put the box's hinges and padlocks into a plastic bag, which Arthur later threw into a small river behind his parents' home, tucked into the woods. They wrapped Sidney's body in plastic and drove over 100 miles to the Pine Barrens in southern New Jersey, about 20 miles north of Atlantic City. The location was close to where Arthur had gone to high school at Admiral Farragut Academy. This is where they buried Sidney's body. That Sunday evening, as instructed, FBI agents were at the payphone waiting for a phone call from the kidnappers. The SEALs had no idea that the FBI was working on the case. They believed they were still dealing with Exxon representatives. FBI agents waited for several hours, but the call never came. It was later determined that Jackie Seal, who was dyslexic, had dialed the wrong phone number. She inverted the last four digits. While the agents waited at a payphone that would never ring, Jackie was dialing a different number to a phone that would never be answered. Now authorities had to wait and hope the kidnappers would contact them another way. On May 7th, Michael Murphy, the Morris County DA, asked the kidnappers through the media for proof that Sidney Riso was still alive. He received no response. On May 15th, an anonymous call came in. It was the kidnappers. They told authorities there was a letter taped to a telephone pole at a certain location. Authorities recovered the letter, which stated that they wanted Patricia Riso to go on TV to make a statement. Patricia complied and appeared on TV that same night to plead for her husband's life. Patricia said in her plea that she just wanted him home safe. Patricia's plea, however, garnered no response from the kidnappers. Eventually, the kidnappers called again saying they were now aware that law enforcement were involved, and because of that, Sidney had now been taken out of the country. FBI agents were skeptical. The kidnappers had previously stated in their letter that Sidney was already being held in Brazil. This contradicted their newest statement. The FBI was able to trace the kidnappers' phone calls and determine that all of them came from local payphones. The letters written by the kidnappers contained clues for the investigators, unbeknownst to them. Investigators concluded that the letters were written by people who lived locally, as only someone who had knowledge of the area would know to leave their letters in places where law enforcement found them. This is something the BSU had picked up on early in the investigation. As the Riso's neighborhood was being canvassed, witnesses reported seeing a blonde woman jogging around the area often, but they didn't recognize her as living there. One person mentioned seeing a white van near the Riso home the morning of Sydney's abduction. On June 16th, a month after she first appeared on TV, Patricia Riso went on TV again to make another statement, asking for her husband's safe return. Later that day, 
the kidnappers left a message on the cellular telephone, which was set up for the kidnappers to make contact with the FBI. The voice message stated that a letter could be found in a certain mailbox in Morris Township. Law enforcement recovered the letter, which made very specific demands. The letter stated that the ransom money needed to be placed inside of Eddie Bauer duffel bags with the entire $18.5 million consisting of used $100 bills. Two days later, on the evening of Thursday, June 18th, the kidnappers called the cellular telephone to make arrangements to have the ransom money delivered. The FBI decided to place agents at as many payphones as they could in the county, particularly at phones where the kidnappers had placed calls before, just in case they used the same phone again. They had also decided they would not use real money this time around. They were all but certain that Sidney was no longer alive, although they didn't mention this to the family. Instead, they had the duffel bags filled with pieces of paper to make it look and feel like real money. In another very specific demand, the kidnappers said that they wanted one of the Riso's daughters, Renee, to drive the person they thought was the Exxon representative to deliver the money that night. In reality, and unbeknownst to the SEALs, the driver was FBI agent Ed Peterson. Peterson was also the agent who waited for hours at the payphone on May 3rd for the call that never came. Not wanting to put another Riso family member in danger, another female FBI agent, who looked enough like Renee, rode with Agent Peterson to meet the kidnappers for the money drop. Although the SEALs believed they were going to meet with an Exxon executive and Renee to get the money, they were sure that law enforcement was involved in the case by now and figured they would be following Renee and the Exxon representative that night. During the phone conversation making arrangements for the ransom money, the kidnappers told Peterson, acting as the Exxon executive, that he would be given several clues to follow in order to get to the site where the money was to be dropped. They told him that he would only have a certain amount of time to get to the location of the next clue. The first stop was at a public library, where Peterson found a letter taped under a bench. The letter gave instructions to go to a school. At the school, they found another letter, which directed them to a payphone at an abandoned building. Peterson was wearing a wire, and the surveillance teams were in place at all the payphones which had been used before. When the call came in to Peterson, an agent watching a payphone at a strip mall in Chester, New Jersey, saw a man talking on the phone at the same time. As the kidnapper hung up with Peterson, the man using the payphone also hung up. The agent also observed the man taking rubber gloves off of his hands. The man then got into an Oldsmobile and drove away. This was their man. The agent called in the license plate of the Oldsmobile and it was determined the vehicle belonged to a rental company. One of the prosecutors knew the owner of the car rental company. He called the business owner at home and made arrangements to have agents and detectives get into the office to find out the name of the people who rented the vehicle. Meanwhile, the last stop the kidnappers gave to Peterson was the train station where Peterson was to board a train with the duffel bags full of money. At different stops, he was instructed to drop a bag off on the train platform and stay on the train for the next stop, where he would drop off another bag of money. 
Arthur set up the plan this way because he believed that having bags of money dropped off at different stops would make authorities send officers to those spots to watch the bags and wait for the kidnappers to come pick them up. He believed this would allow him to snag the last few bags while law enforcement resources were directed to keep an eye on the first few bags dropped off. Unfortunately for Arthur, he had not accurately calculated the route he gave to agents. The amount of time he gave them to get to the train station from the payphone wasn't enough. The train pulled away before Peterson could get on it. Back at the car rental company, FBI agents and police detectives reviewed records and soon learned the identity of the couple who had rented the Oldsmobile. This is when they first saw the names Arthur and Jackie Seal. At some point, Arthur realized that something was wrong and the money was not coming. He waited for the bags to be dropped one by one, but the bags never came. Upon realizing they weren't getting the money, Arthur phoned Jackie and said they should return the rental car. The couple made arrangements to meet back at the car rental company. They had no idea that law enforcement saw them driving the Oldsmobile and had already been at the car rental company. Arthur arrived first in the rented Oldsmobile. You can imagine his surprise when law enforcement greeted him at the door. Arthur was immediately placed under arrest. The rental car was searched and inside the trunk, agents found duct tape and some notes the SEALs had made about the kidnapping. As they were going through the evidence, Jackie Seal pulled up in the couple's Mercedes-Benz, unaware that her husband was in handcuffs inside. Jackie was also arrested. Inside the Mercedes-Benz, agents found bullets that would later be matched to the one that wounded Sidney Riso. Arthur Seal wasn't done trying to evade justice. He was confident that he and his wife couldn't be convicted of Sidney's murder. He believed that even though they were caught trying to get the ransom money, there was no evidence tying them to Sidney Riso. They could just make up a story that they had heard about an Exxon executive going missing and decided to capitalize on it by saying they kidnapped him and demanding money. Investigators, however, were at least one step ahead of Arthur and Jackie. In addition to the evidence found inside of the rented Oldsmobile and the couple's Mercedes-Benz, a blonde hair was found inside of one of the ransom letters. That hair was linked to Jackie Seal. Animal hairs were also found and determined to belong to a golden retriever. The Seals had a golden retriever. Carpet fibers from the Oldsmobile were matched to those found on one of the ransom letters, and another letter contained fibers that matched those from the carpet inside the Seals' bedroom. Police also recovered the plastic bag containing the hinges and padlocks from the wooden box. This was the bag that Arthur had thrown into the river behind his parents' home. Investigators also found inside the SEALs' home a list of overseas banks. Additionally, inside their home was Arthur's recently issued passport and a book about how to launder money. After their arrests, both Arthur and Jackie SEAL were held without bail. Morris County DA Michael Murphy announced that the couple faced charges for kidnapping, extortion, and conspiracy. U.S. Attorney Michael Shertoff said the SEALs would face the same charges in federal court and additional charges for murder, using the U.S. mail to send ransom letters, and for traveling across state lines to commit extortion. Shertoff said that regardless of how Sidney died, 
whether by natural causes or not, the seals would still be charged with his murder. Shertoff said, whatever the evidence shows about the specific way Mr. Riso lost his life, no one can say a man abducted the way Mr. Riso was died of natural causes. While in custody, both Arthur and Jackie initially refused to cooperate with investigators. Agent Peterson thought, however, that if Jackie spoke with someone she trusted, who could encourage her to cooperate with law enforcement, she just might turn on her husband. Peterson called Jackie's mother, who didn't at all care for Arthur. She was particularly angry with him now for getting her daughter caught up in a kidnapping and murder plot. Peterson called Jackie's mother, also named Irene, who told him that she had been trying to visit her daughter but was told that Jackie wasn't allowed to have visitors. Irene told Peterson that if he would let her speak with Jackie, she would get her to cooperate. Peterson made the arrangements, and after Jackie spoke with her mother, she agreed to tell Peterson what happened and said she'd testify against Arthur in exchange for a reduced sentence. On June 27th, Jackie led FBI agents to Sydney's body in the Pine Barrens. Agent Peterson later said that if Jackie had not shown them where Sydney was buried, there was no way his body would ever have been discovered. Three days later, on Tuesday, June 30th of 1992, the SEALs came to their scheduled arraignment hearings to plead to the charges against them. Jackie pleaded guilty to extortion and conspiracy to commit extortion. She also agreed to testify against her husband, whose trial was scheduled to begin in September. District Attorney Murphy said under the terms of the plea agreement that any sentence Jackie received in state court would be served concurrently or alongside her federal sentence. Later that day, at his arraignment, Arthur pleaded not guilty to all charges against him. His attorney, Chester Keller, said that Arthur was aware that Jackie was cooperating and had agreed to testify against him. Keller petitioned the court for a change in venue to move the trial to another state, claiming the media coverage in New Jersey would not allow his client to have a fair trial. On Monday, August 3rd, U.S. District Judge Garrett Brown ruled on the matter. He said the trial could only be moved to another jurisdiction if jury selection was to proceed and a fair jury could not be found. He scheduled Arthur's trial to begin on September 10th. By that time, Arthur Seal had a change of heart. Likely knowing he wouldn't fare well at trial, Arthur stood in front of a judge on September 8th and pleaded guilty to numerous charges in federal court, which included extortion, conspiracy to extort, use of a firearm during a crime of violence, use of the mail with the intent to extort, use of the telephone with the intent to extort, and two counts of travel with the intent to extort. One week later, on September 15th, Arthur pleaded guilty in state court to kidnapping and felony murder. His sentencing would come at the end of November. On Friday, November 13th, Arthur was interviewed in jail by Barbara Walters for a 2020 episode. In the interview, Arthur claimed that he and Jackie had been so strapped for money that they didn't see any other way out. He told Barbara that this was not typical of the kind of person he really was, saying, My whole life, I've been a hardworking, moral, decent individual, and we really epitomize most of the American ethic. When asked about the box that he and Jackie made to hold Sidney Riso, 
Arthur tried to downplay the trauma and discomfort that Sidney surely went through before he died. Arthur said the box was the size of a closet and that he and Jackie had tested it to ensure that a person could move around in it. He said that Sidney was allowed to stand up each time the seals arrived to give him water, but this statement conflicted with the prosecution's investigative documents. The documents state that Sidney was never allowed out of the box the entire time he was held captive. On Monday, November 30th, Arthur Seal was sentenced in both federal and state court. The hearing for Arthur's federal sentencing lasted more than two and a half hours. Sidney's son, Christopher, said in his victim impact statement, When Arthur and Irene Seal were arrested and the answers finally came, they seemed more cruel and perverted than even our tormented dreams could conjure. After all, these are people with their own family. Couldn't they realize the depth of the wound that this would inflict on our family? Shouldn't they have known in the core of their beings that what they contemplated was a violation of all that family and decency stood for? He went on to say, people who do this can only be described as evil. Christopher's sisters, Robin and Renee, also spoke during the sentencing hearing. Their sentiments were similar to that of their brother, particularly their feelings about the defendant. Sidney Riso's wife, Patricia, later read a statement of her own outside the court. Patricia said she forgave Arthur Seal, but does not believe his apology. Arthur was provided an opportunity to speak during the hearing. He chose only to give a brief statement. Arthur said that God had forgiven him. Although brief, I imagine Arthur's statement made a huge impact on Sidney's family, and not in a good way. In an awkward and bold statement, Arthur said in court that he held Sidney Riso in his arms as he died, and then said, I want to apologize to the court and Mrs. Riso for everything that I did. Before he sentenced Arthur, U.S. District Court Judge Garrett E. Brown felt compelled to make a statement to the defendant. Judge Brown said to Arthur Seal, What you have done is thoroughly evil. Your actions were not for any cause. They were not rash or impulsive. They were cold-blooded and calculated. To the extent you seek mercy, you will be given the same you gave your innocent victim, none. Judge Brown then sentenced Arthur Seal to 95 years in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge also imposed a $1.75 million fine to ensure that he never profits from selling his story. Brown was not finished. He said to Arthur, you will spend the rest of your life in custody. You will be fed. Medical treatment will be provided. You will not be bound, gagged, shot, or placed in a coffin. Arthur Seal's day in court was just beginning. He still needed to appear in front of a judge in state court. For his second sentencing, Arthur stood in front of Superior Court Judge Reginald Stanton. Patricia Riso did not attend the state sentencing, but Christopher and his sisters did. The siblings addressed the court in a similar manner to what they had presented in front of Judge Brown just a few hours earlier. Renee Riso was firm when she reminded the court that Arthur Seal tormented us for more than a month when he knew my father was dead. By continuing with the ransom letters and phone calls and still trying to collect the ransom money almost six weeks after Sidney had died, Joseph O'Neill, Arthur's attorney for his state case, pleaded with the court to avoid giving Arthur the maximum sentence. O'Neill asked Judge Stanton 
to make his client's state sentence run concurrent with his federal sentence. His efforts to get leniency for Arthur proved unsuccessful. There would be no leniency for the heinous crimes that Arthur committed alongside his wife. Judge Stanton asked Arthur if he had anything to say, at which time the defendant stood and said, I wish I could go back and erase this, but I can't. I don't know how. I don't fully understand. Judge Stanton then handed down Arthur's sentence, saying, The safety of human community requests that you remain in prison for the rest of your natural life. He then sentenced Arthur to serve 30 years for kidnapping, with the possibility of parole after 15 years, and to serve a life sentence for the murder of Sidney Riso, with the possibility of parole after 30 years. He added a $220,000 fine on top of the sentence. Judge Stanton also ordered that the state sentences would run consecutively with his federal sentence, meaning that if Arthur survived his 95-year federal prison sentence, he would then have to begin serving his time in state prison. Arthur was essentially sentenced to die in prison for his crimes. On Monday, January 25, 1993, Jackie Seal appeared for sentencing in front of U.S. District Court Judge Garrett Brown. Due to her plea deal and cooperation, D.A. Michael Murphy had agreed to drop all state charges against Jackie, except for one count of kidnapping, but that sentence would run concurrent with her federal sentence, unlike her husband's sentences. Jackie's attorney, Sally Ann Floria, told the court that her client was the victim of a controlling and abusive husband who manipulated her into going along with his get-rich plan, and without him, she never would have been a part of it. Judge Brown sentenced Jackie Seal to a term of 20 years without the possibility of parole for her part in the brutal crimes. Surprisingly, Arthur Seal seems to have accomplished more positive goals in prison than he ever did on the outside. While serving his sentence in prison, Arthur earned a master's degree and a Ph.D. in psychology through correspondence courses. He tutors other inmates and has become involved in various programs in prison. Since he began his sentence, Arthur has served time at the North Dakota State Penitentiary and the Federal Correctional Institute at Fairton, New Jersey. Currently, Arthur Seal resides at the Devons Federal Medical Center in Ayer, Massachusetts. His release date from the federal sentence is March 24th of 2075, at which time he would be 128 years old. At that time, his state sentence would just be beginning. Arthur put a man in a box where he suffered and eventually died. The irony is not lost here. Arthur essentially received a brown box sentence for what he did to Sidney Riso. Jackie Seal spent 17 years at the Federal Correction Institution in Danbury, Connecticut. In June of 2009, she was transferred to a halfway house in Illinois. In January of 2010, Jackie was released even though she served less than 18 years of her 20-year sentence that did not allow parole. Today, Jackie is a free woman. Patricia Risa eventually moved to Texas and later remarried. Patricia died on August 19th of 2011. She was 77 years old. Tragedy seemed to find her family over and over. Her son Gregory died from AIDS in 1987. Her son Christopher died in 2000. 
In August of 2001, her daughter Renee's husband, Peter, died in a boating accident, leaving two young children behind. He was only 38 years old. On November 13th of 1992, in an episode titled No Way Out, 2020 featured an interview that Barbara Walters did with Arthur Seal and Patricia Riso. Barbara Walters went on to win an Emmy for that episode. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways to support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a rating and review in iTunes, which makes the show more discoverable. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by Mott & Bow, Cove, and Beta Brand. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com slash murderish, where your monthly support will take you behind the mic and give you access to perks like exclusive bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. If you have any comments or questions, or if you'd like a copy of the episode's source material, email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderish, J-A-M-I, at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Murderish researcher Steve Field. Don't forget to mark your calendars for October 18th, 2019 for the True Crime Variety Show, hosted by my friends and me. Show and ticket information can be found in the Murderish Podcast Facebook discussion group. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And I'm Jason Horton. And we're the hosts of Ghost Town, a comedy podcast about all places abandoned, tragic, mysterious, haunted, and true crime That's not a word. <laughs> we cover all kinds of locations like... The Los Feliz Murder House. An L.A. murder frozen in time. Action Park. The world's most dangerous amusement park. JonBenet Ramsey's house, Woodstock 99, the Cecil Hotel, and the Black House. Ooh, Satan. Mm. So pause the podcast you're currently listening to immediately and go subscribe to Ghost Town. You can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.